You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Our text this morning comes from uh, Matthew's Gospel and is a parable, Uh, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Yeah, Max is already laughing because he knows where I'm going with this. I didn't tell you anything yet, sir. Uh, you're just a, a student of the Bible, aren't you? And the times. <laughs> it reads, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, You also go into the vineyard. I I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. And about five o'clock, he went out and found others still standing around. And he said to them, why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last, and then going to the first. When those hired at about five o'clock came forward, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now, when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us? Who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat? And I know something about picking grapes, by the way. Uh, Picking my my in-laws' grapes, their Pinot Noir grapes in their vineyard. It is backbreaking work. But the landowner or the manager replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last one the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? I love that part. Are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. The word of the Lord. I had prepared a completely different talk for this Sunday. But yesterday... Because of current events, I decided to pivot and uh, go this direction this morning. I don't have a long talk prepared because of that. This is a talk just 24 hours old. Um, But I wanted to speak on this passage in light of the national conversation taking place regarding the student loan forgiveness program that was announced this week from the Biden administration. The parable I just read is similar in meaning to other parables of Jesus, namely the parable of the prodigal son, which we're all maybe more familiar with. In that parable, the older brother, right, becomes very upset. And he feels it's a slap in the face that his father would receive back this son who has squandered his inheritance. The father in that story, of course, gives the son, the prodigal son, unmerited grace, we would say. Welcoming him home, giving him a place in the family again, putting a robe and a ring on his on his finger, slaughtering the fatted calf, you know, going through all this stuff, and the older brothers watching it from afar and fuming. 
feeling that it's all so very unfair because he, the dutiful son, you know, has a right to feel this way, he thinks, because his brother was not the dutiful son. And yet he's being treated as such. And so he's taking all this as a, as a matter of great disrespect to him. And he addresses it with his father. And his father, of course, says, your, your, your son was in, you know, your brother was in trouble. He was good as dead. And yet he's alive. We're celebrating him. You are my dutiful son. You are just as loved as he is. But nevertheless, your, your brother is home. And so there's this outpouring of grace. And likewise, in this story with the laborers in the vineyard, the, the laborers who worked all day are like the older brother. <laughs> Watching from afar, those who are undeserving receive grace or a blessing and getting angry about it. Because to them, it feels like a slap in the face, right? They're undeserving. I deserve this. They don't. Right? That's the, it's the same. It's kind of the same message that God's love, the kingdom of God, is radically different, operates on a radically different level than the kingdoms or the powers of this world. Love is like that. It looks crazy sometimes. Love looks crazy sometimes. It, it's illogical. It's irrational. Love is. Is it not? If you've ever been in love, you know what I mean. You might be willing to drive, you know, 12 hours in the car just to spend 12 hours or a day with your, with, with your loved one and then drive back home for work the next day. I mean, love is illogical. Love does crazy stuff. It's the greatest thing on earth, right? Anyway, I think the message of this parable and the message of other Jesus's parable, like, like, like the parable of the prodigal son, is a message about the redemptive power of love how it changes hearts and minds and turns us into people that are divine, like God. We can go more into that in a few minutes, but lots of people this week sounded like the older brother in the prodigal son story. Lots of people this week sounded like the laborers who worked all day, uh, and they have a loud voice in, on social media and in the news, and they were saying it's not fair. And it's a slap in the face to those of us who have already paid off our loans our student loans, or who make too much money to qualify for this program, that others should be given grace. Bear in mind that most of these same people who are complaining were silent and are silent about the 280 billion with a B payroll protection loans that have been forgiven. Think about that for a moment. Student loans that have been forgiven or will be forgiven amount to about 300 billion. The payroll protection loans that have been forgiven so far amount to 280 billion, and yet you don't hear much complaining about that. Why? Why are they? Why? Why are those complaining today and talking about unfairness and being slapped in the face? Why aren't they equally as mad about the payroll protection loan forgiveness? Because those who got payroll protection loans were businesses and affluent, and the wealthy, and therefore the so-called deserving those seen as worthy of such help and such forgiveness. At the end of the day, I think a lot of this boils down to classism and just good old fashioned worship of capital and capitalism and those who appease the God of capitalism and those who do not. I think this is also about an underlying belief among many today that the poor are poor because they deserve it. We live in a meritocracy, we're told. 
The poor must have some moral failing. They must be lazy or they must be unintelligent or they must have made some really bad decisions to be poor because nobody's poor for no reason, right? Without good reason is there's moral failing here. Likewise, the rich are rich because they're assumed to be morally upright, hardworking, intelligent, and therefore deserving. When the fact is most people who are wealthy or who are even just upper middle class. Most people in that position are so because their family and friends are wealthy and they were given special opportunities and financial support in order to get where they're at. I know that's been true for me. I am what you would describe as solid middle class, <laughs> but, and maybe even lower middle class for Los Angeles, to be honest. But the only reason why I am not poor is because I had wealthy family members pay off my student loans a few years ago. I had six figures, just over six figures in student loan debt. From going to school to be a pastor, keep that in mind, you know, that lucrative job called being a pastor, six figures in student loan debt just to do that, which is pretty common for those with both the undergraduate and graduate degree in Bible or in theology. But the only reason why I am middle class and not poor is because I had wealthy family members pay off my student loans while also supporting my family financially when my wife was injured at work and could no longer work. The workers' compensation we received wasn't enough to cover all our expenses or her medical bills, which our good insurance would not cover entirely. If we didn't receive that help, we would have been bankrupt years ago. It's because we had wealthy family members who were willing to help us and able to help us through those tough times. And she and I, Emily and I, we're, kind, we're a common story in America. We're not an aberration in the system. Student loans, injury at work, medical debt, right? We are a common story in America. Land of the free and home of the brave, where you're free to go bankrupt from student loans and crushing medical debt and asked to be brave about it. Meanwhile, the government continues to give the wealthiest not only payroll loan forgiveness, but enormous tax cuts totaling more than $500 billion. I did some research. I couldn't figure out what the final number was, but it's north of $500 billion in combined tax cuts and payroll protection program forgiveness. Much more than student loan forgiveness. But we're told to ignore that and have contempt for the poor and the middle class who receive partial forgiveness on some of their loans. Most of this student loan forgiveness plan actually wasn't the forgiveness itself, but new mechanisms that will make repaying their loans easier, meaning lower monthly payments, limits on interest, et cetera. Those are big deals we're not hearing about it really. Bottom line is this actually makes, it actually means that fewer loans will go into default. More people will be actually able to pay off their loans. This is actually a win for conservatives. It's not, it doesn't seem that way, but this is actually a win for them because they're all about pay your debts. This is going to make it easier for people to pay their debts. Less loans will go into default now. 
Most people with student loans are still going to have to pay them off, 75% at least. What happened this week is not going to change that. It just saddens me that the people who should understand and appreciate the grace and the generosity, the mercy, the people who should understand that the most, the so-called believers in the Jesus who told parables like the one I read this morning, those people are some of the angriest right now. <laughs> I think a lot of churches this morning that sing songs out of the hymnals are uh, probably not singing the ones, what, 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 is, what is the one that says, Jesus, uh, praise the one who paid off my debt. That's, that's a lyric in one of them, right? There's lots of, lots of hymns and lots of, lots of liturgy that's about how Jesus paid it all, right? That Jesus took our debts, that somebody stepped in and paid what you owed to the ultimate, you know, lender, God Almighty. My guess is you're not going to hear a lot of those hymns sung this morning in those churches. Instead, many evangelicals are on the forefront of decrying the student loan forgiveness program. Thus, ironically, they sound a lot like the older brother in the prodigal son story, and they sound a lot like the laborers who worked all day in the vineyard. To be clear, I'm not saying that these parables tell us exactly what to do in every circumstance in life. I don't believe that we can turn, we can simply turn to the Bible, even the Gospels, in order to find out exactly what our economic policies should be. I think there's actually something kind of ironic and problematic about us as progressives wielding scriptures at times like this. And I'm, I'm I do it. I think there's something kind of ironic and problematic about us progressives wielding scripture at times like this and saying, the Bible tells us exactly what to do in this circumstance. Well, we're really not those people anymore, are we? To proof text, all right? To say, oh, we got a scripture for that. Now, do I think Jesus provided us with an ethical system? Well, let me just say it this way. I do not believe Jesus provided us with an, with an ethical system of new rules to follow. That, to me, is not how we should read these parables or even the Gospels as a new Decalogue, a new Ten Commandments. Here's how you should do things in every circumstance. That's a very conservative reading of the text, and I don't read the text that way anymore. And my guess is most of you don't either. And to be frank, a lot of my dialogue with people over this week online and the use of scripture was simply to show conservatives that they're really not as conservative as they, they're really not as, you know, biblical inerrantists as they think they are. They're cherry picking, which of course we do. And I embrace cherry picking the Bible. I love cherry picking, but at least we can admit it. That's often what I am doing when I'm quoting scripture to conservatives this week, I guess you could say, is simply saying, you're being a hypocrite. Anyway, I don't think Jesus provided us with an ethical system of new rules to follow, but rather, an, I, I see, I read Jesus as offering us an invitation to think critically about what justice and equity looks like in our particular circumstances, in our lives, in our world. I think we should see Jesus's parables and teachings as discourses intended to jar us, jar us into rethinking our concepts of justice and righteousness. I think Jesus's parables in particular had a subversive function originally. The uniting theme of many of his parables was that they interrupted people's expectations. 
interrupted people's expectations and created a break where another reality could be born, could come to exist, aka the kingdom of God, which functioned really different than the kingdoms of this world. These parables had a jarring effect. Again, I don't think the goal was to simply give us new rules and new ethics, but to call us to think critically about what justice and equity and love looks like. And that's a hard question. And how justice and love and equity looks often radically different than what we're used to or what our culture says. For this reason, Peter Rollins liked to say that Jesus was unethical and unwise. This is a provocative thing to say. Jesus was unethical and unwise because he was he went so against the so-called accepted wisdom and ethics of his day. Let's keep in mind, Jesus lived in a kind of meritocracy, just like we do. It was believed then, just like now, that the poor were poor because they deserved to be. The rich were rich because they deserved to be. There was even a theology behind it. The poor were poor because, the, because God, the gods, or the fate, or the fates, had assigned them this place in society. And the rich and the wealthy, the highborn were such because God or the gods or the fates had decided so, had ordained it. Your station in life, your socioeconomic status was, was ordained by the cosmological powers. Thus, the exploitation and oppression of the underclass was theologically justified back then. And I would argue it still is today despite the fact that we are a modern society, right? In a similar way, capitalism today functions like a deity, like a theology. Capitalism functions like a theology or a, or a god that determines where everyone stands on the social ladder. Just like a god, we're told not to question or challenge capitalism or the free market. It is all-knowing and all-powerful. You are poor because God has made it, capitalism, the free market has decided that's where you belong. And it is all wise. Who are we to question it? This must be the way things should work, we're told. The poor deserve to be poor and the rich deserve to be rich. But Jesus, Jesus comes along turns all that on its head and calls us to think critically about what the path of equity and justice and love look like. And quite often, according to Jesus, it looks like siding with the powerless over the powerful and siding with the poor over the rich. And as we turn our attention to communion today, and I'm looking forward to a discussion, <laughs> and my talk was kind of short, but as we turn our attention towards communion today, I want us to consider the anti-capitalist themes of this most ancient of Christian traditions. And I talked about this last week a little bit. For early Christians, this ceremony of breaking bread was intimately connected with this idea of sharing bread, sharing resources. This was not just a ceremony with abstract theological meaning, but it signified how we are to actually live in relationship to each other, how we are actually to construct a society, I think. But the first century church, the church in Jerusalem, took this so seriously, this, this sacrament, that they started a commune and shared their resources. They went that far with this. That was their understanding. 
But for Jesus, the Last Supper, the first and inaugural communion, was part of his self-giving. He gave bread and wine, saying, this is my body, this is my blood. This was not merely a symbol. It wasn't merely a rite or a ceremony. He said that he was giving himself to us and for us, and that's what he did, literally. For Jesus, the Eucharist was a supreme act of concern for others. That's what this meant. It was a supreme act of concern for others. It was about sharing. It was about community. Like the bread that he broke and gave to his disciples, his body was to be broken and crucified by the oppressive powers of the day. The Eucharist signifies this, this being broken for others. I want us to meditate on that this morning as we receive Holy Communion. It's about this idea of being broken for others and sharing ourselves with others. Being broken for the cause of justice, being broken for the cause of love and truth, being broken for the poor, being broken for the outcast, being broken for those without. Communion is about sharing, self-giving, and being broken for others. Let us meditate on that now as Max leads us in song. Each episode of The Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. few thoughts they're not well formed or anything but as far as the student um loan repayment honestly i feel like just ten thousand is almost kind of offensive <laughs> to the students after like what you cited what's forgiven for other people and then people complain that you know that other people's debt is being forgiven i think a bigger thing i struggle with is why people seem to have such a vested interest in keeping classism around um why do you feel threatened at the thought of for example universal basic income or income caps or any way to make amends um or even reparations for women minorities there's there's no amount of reparations we can pay for lost chances and what we've taken from other people. And yeah, people feel threatened by economic equality. And they, I mean, just because, you know, maybe we can't fix capitalism, but say just because the market says, okay, you're a doctor or you're a sports figure, you can make this much and you're valued at this, but someone who's a nurse or like a carpenter and they're struggling here. Um, one doesn't deserve more. Maybe you paid for your education and you had help maybe paying for your education. Um, but because you were hard 10 years with your brain and someone worked hard 10 years with your hands, no one is better than anyone else. No one to me is more deserving of wealth and a home 
So it's, you know, is housing a right? Is economic inequality or economic equality a right? Um, is there a way, you know, maybe you'll always, people will make millions millions but if we could somehow cap it like well no one really needs to live beyond this and we can kind of redistribute but again people are so scared of other people becoming equal with themselves and that's I don't know as like a person of faith it's really hard and we live in a LA where we see the discrepancy so clearly as you know I'm sure I'm both a beneficiary and a victim and we all pay into it but it's just yeah, people seemed very threatened by economic equality and yeah, what we would do to solve that problem. Well, that's, that's first of all, really good remarks. Thank you. Um, and a really good question there. I want to open it up to the group. Um, you know, why, why are people so threatened by some of the just basic ideas that you voiced? I mean, frankly, have, you know, have, having some, some safeguards in place for people. I mean, people were threatened, I think, when Social Security and, and Medicare came along. They called it socialism and were deeply threatened by them. Of course, nobody can remember that because it was a long time ago, I guess. But, you know, why, why are people so, why is that a knee-jerk reaction for so many people? Yeah, Emily, would you, um, Anna, would you pass that to Taylor? And Taylor, would you pass it to Emily? <clears throat> I mean, I don't have much to say, but I think that, like, the, the biggest reason is power. Because those power who dynamics, have yeah. the money have the power. And, I mean, we've seen, like, even Amazon is like getting involved in like national security issue. Like, I mean, because the people with the money have the power. And so, you know, right now, the majority of the people in our society that have been the wealthiest have been white, straight men, and they're afraid of giving up that power. White male God, Jen. And so if they, you know, start giving other people slices of the pie, then they're going to want to say in how things are done and they don't want to give that up. So, I mean, I think it's a pretty simple answer to a very complex issue, but I, I think that's the root of it is people are afraid of letting, I mean, it's like, you know, that's, I think the root of like, when people start talking about critical race theory and this and that, and all these like controversial things, it's all about not wanting to give up the power that that majority has had for our entire civilization and that they don't want anyone else to be able to have what they have i mean i often agree with my wife and this is a good example of that <laughs> uh yeah i think power dynamics are everything here and yeah steve i see that hand and then um I, and i just want to just speak real quick and just say add it deconstructing what we mean by power is really important too because really underneath that word we're talking about race issues and yeah and other issues relating to race and gender and class right that's really what we mean when we say that certain people in this country and their society feel very threatened who are in power and by that what we really are talking about is race gender and class right um steve yeah i i absolutely agree i think one of the other interesting phenomena of american capitalism is there's the threatened there's the people who are in power who feel threatened but a lot of the voice also comes from the people who aren't in power who have the pipe dream that one day they might be in power so i'm going to be threatened on behalf of the people that i worship who are in power right oh you know bezos elon musk whoever like the people who have power 
they feel threatened. So now I have to feel threatened, even though I would directly benefit from this, even though, you know, I have a lot of medical debt and maybe, you know, or I have a lot of loans and this will help me. I have to feel threatened on behalf of the people who are actually in power, even though I don't have that power. And I feel like that that is this underlying realm, like underlying narrative of um, that sort of religious conservative base that is the people who benefit the most are the people who are the angriest you know the people who need who could really use help in getting out of poverty and having their medical issues taken care of or you know having free insulin things like that are the people who are the angriest that it's happening or vocal you know the most vocal about being angry that it's happening um then the other comment i was just going to make is you know like you, I think, you know, I've seen a lot of uh, Bible verses around the last few days about um, things like, uh, you know, like the verse you started with or Deuteronomy and things like that. But I find it interesting. What I'm not seeing a lot of is that for, you mentioned this a little bit in your talk, but for everybody or, or so many, for all the evangelicals and the conservative Christians in the country, their entire concept of faith is propped up on this concept of i couldn't pay this myself and way a long time ago in the old testament they were trying to pay it themselves and then they couldn't and then here came jesus and he forgave our debts for us and that concept should be so in like baked into the philosophy and yet isn't you know is so yeah and, and the only reason why and you already hit on it is because there's this deeper ideological theology of, that, of power, right? That plays into that, that is the worship of capitalism. I think it was Mark Twain who said, there, nobody's poor in America. There's only temporarily embarrassed millionaires, right? That there's, but, but there's this, it's, it, it's astonishing really. Uh, and it's really, I think, frankly, we who have gone through religious deconstruction can understand how this works better than, you know, uh, secular society, how these dynamics, these power dynamics within profoundly ideological systems like these political structures, we understand how they work at an almost religious level. People relate to the, the only thing that could get somebody who is middle class or poor to, I think, side with the conservative platform is because there's like a, there's like this, I don't know, like a theology, a fe kind of a fear-based theology, unless you, you know, side with this, unless you believe in this God of capitalism, you're going to be cast out, you're going to be punished, <laughs> or it, as long as you, you play, you, you worship this God, you too will be blessed one day, you know what I mean? It's like this prosperity gospel, theology. I don't know, I mean, I grew up in that, and it's not rational, it's entirely, it's entirely theological, um, a lot of that stuff, anyway. Uh, but I think we who have gone through religious deconstruction understand how that works better than anybody else in society, um, which is interesting because um, it is it's it's theology that capitalism is theology really. I'm I'm uh, I have so many other thoughts, but I'm also just reminded of the Jesus saying the love of, your money isn't the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all evil, right? And if this isn't the love of money, right? If this if this idea of money tied up with power and how that affects other people's livelihood and, and how that affects the poor and things like that isn't that exact concept, I don't know what is. Uh, yeah, Leanne, could you pass that to you, thanks. 
Yeah, great point, Steve, and everyone who's been speaking, Emily and Anna. Um, something that has also come to mind, um, I think, is connected to a lot of what you talk about, Erin, about like the inherent like absurdity of life. And you brought up the point of like, we kind of have this internalized ethos about class that if you're poor, you deserve it. And if you're rich, you deserve it. And I think it's scary to contemplate that poverty can happen to really good people who really could be exceptional and could contribute to the world in an amazing way if they had opportunity. That's a really sad and scary and angering thought. Likewise, the fact that there are very wealthy people who have a lot of power and influence in the world that don't deserve it. And that's also a, a sad and scary and angering thought. So I think in some ways, whether we realize it or not, we all impose a certain level of deservedness or order in our class system so that it can make sense in our minds and we don't go crazy because it can be so difficult to contemplate the moral bankruptcy of someone like Jeff Bezos and also the complete untapped potential of some inner city person or kid who's just never going to get a chance but could be an incredible scientist or artist. Um, and I think just like you talk about, Aaron, how we sometimes use, often use religion as a band-aid over these like gaping wounds of absurdity. I think we think of class as a culture in that way as well, because absurdity and a lack of like A equals like A, one plus two equals three, like talent plus this should equal a prosperous life. And so often it doesn't. Talent and passion plus hard work must equal. Exactly. Basically watch Shark Tank for details on this whole frame of thought. Um, so I just think it's interestingly interwoven into what you speak of, Aaron, of the fear of the absurd. Yeah, it's it, it. Frankly, it's all religion. It's it's metaphysics. It's theology. Yeah, and you want to jump in since the mic's right here. What's first that? of all, I want to commend you on being so wise to agree with your wife. Very yeah, often. thank you. You know, so, you good, learn the hard way on that. Good move. Good move. <laughs> Um, oh my gosh, so much to think about here. Um, a couple of things. I grew up in a family where my father in particular grew up in utter poverty. Like he's 85 years old. He remembers living in a house where he had to go to a well to get water and they had no electricity and they literally moved their house. Um, like total poverty. And, um, he pulled himself out of that over the years he at great cost to everyone because he was in the military. And so that was how he got out of poverty. And that's a very difficult life for a family. Um, but he did. Um, and so, you know, I, like most of us probably grew up in a very evangelical background where it was, you know, um, intermixed so much with capitalism of, of, you know, you work hard and you're blessed. Like those went together in these ways that now I look at and I'm like, 
so offended by. And um, for me, the hardest thing about like hearing all these comments this week is it's just one more disappointment for me. Like I'm, I am so despondent in many ways about the evangelical church that many of my friends are still in and still believe. And on an individual basis, they're very compassionate, generous, kind, wonderful people. And, you know, I still spend a lot of energy when I'm with them trying to reconcile these things about them that they can have these philosophical views that don't reconcile with their personal lives and how they how they live their lives out. Um, I just got back um, from a trip to the Netherlands, which is really interesting. Um, I have friends who live there who come visit here a lot. So I've had a, a, a spent a lot of time with them and they're shocked when they come here about certain things, of course. And, you know, like I think capitalism, like most things is not an utter evil. It's, it's, it could be managed to produce good and it's been unregulated to such a degree that it in fact, it's based on, fundamentally it's based on our natural greed that we all have. That's what drives capitalism which in a strange, terrible way could be a good fuel if it was regulated in such a way that it, it didn't produce a Jeff Bezos, right? Um, and so when I go there, like their, their country is capitalist, basically, like you, you can make more money, you can not work and make less money, but there's a fundamental security to their society that we don't have. And I think that's so much of what we're missing. I don't begrudge somebody personally. I don't begrudge somebody making large amounts of money. That doesn't bother me any more than it bothers me for someone's loans to be forgiven. You know, it's the other side of that. As long as everybody has a certain amount of security. If I don't have to make decisions on whether I'm gonna take my kid to the doctor because I won't be able to afford the bill. In, a, in middle-class America, I've had to make those decisions many, many times. You know, crappy insurance, no insurance, you know, um, um, you know, all of these things should not be happening. And that's where, like, to me, it's that the, bottom should be lifted up to a foundational level and then where you go up from there is where you go up from there as long as it's not um exploitive um that doesn't bother me so much but that's just me i'm not saying that that's the i haven't spent a whole lot of time on economic theory or anything but um and uh, this is the last thing i'll say the thing we were talking about before about you know, what underlies it and power is where the threat is. I think there's two aspects of that. I think there's the power, like you don't want, it's baked in to our society. I mean, the founding fathers only gave the vote to, to landowners, men, you know, people who deserved it, who had the intellect or whatever as they perceived it to, to make good decisions. 
So it's baked in, but I think it's it's that plus it's been so ingrained in our identities that there is this hope that if I worked hard enough and got a couple of good breaks, I could be that guy, that it becomes part of our self-identity that if I am, if, 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 if I'm in the middle class, I earned my way there, even if I didn't really, but that's part of my identity. So it's a threat for somebody else to make it up without having quote, worked as hard as I did, because then that threatens my concept of myself that I made it here because I did it. So I think it's a combination of those two at different levels of wealth. Probably. Yeah, no, that's really good. And um, we talked about this actually last week too. Um, I know you were here. We were talking about socialism and capitalism and what those are. And they have d different meanings in different contexts. There's not like one one meaning. And I think most of us probably land where you're at, where it's sort of like, um, you know, it's not it's not so much a choice between the two, but it's about finding, you know, uh, the because there is no silver bullet. There isn't like the perfect utopian system. There is only like some that are better than others. You know, the one the least exploitative uh, is the one we're hoping for right? and looking for. And I I think one of the things that I was thinking occurred to me when you were talking or you sparked this thought was, you know, the solutions to the problems that we're talking about, really, we, we, we're, we're made to believe, I feel like that, oh, this is so complicated, you can't fix the system. No, actually, like we can, <laughs> you know, it's like uh, Andre Henry's t-shirt, you know, uh, what things don't have to be this way. What, what's, it doesn't have to be this way. Like, that's such a powerful statement, because it hasn't always been this way. You know, uh, Max, you posted something yesterday or the day before about how education was enormously um, cut. Funding was enormously cut in the 70s and 80s, which led to these exploitative, you know, tuitions and 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 student loans, which were entirely, you know, caused by the underfunding of education, which was a conservative platform issue, you know, and the funneling of money, frankly, into defense programs and lucrative defense contracts. The F-35 program, the new stealth fighter F-35 Lightning program is going to cost 1.7, at least 1.7 trillion with a T. One jet. We can still kill people without this jet, by the way. We still have lots of other ways of making more. But nobody is upset about 1.7 trillion with a T being spent over the next, I don't know, 10 years or so, or where the lifetime of this program is. Imagine if we just said, you know what, we're not going to make that jet. Instead, we're going to take $1.7 trillion over the next however, however many years and, and refund education and bring down the cost of these student loans and these predatory lending practices. I mean, things we do, we actually know what to do. It's not like, sorry, rocket science. Like there really are some real world solutions, but the problem is we live in a country that doesn't want to do them because we believe in the gods of capitalism, because frankly, you know, lots of people still buy into that conservative idea that the free market and capitalism and the things work the, the way they are because this must be the way they work best. It's just not true. Anyway, I'm, I get upset about it. But um, all right, I don't mean to monopolize. Does anybody else want to react or have anything to say today about any of this? Ugh, it's heavy, right? It's like a lot to process and deal with. Uh, Max, yeah. Yeah, here. Let's take this. I was just going to say, say, on a hopeful note, I see a lot of hope, right? 
I think especially in younger generations, that's tend to, tends to be the case. Like these conversations, like as funny as it is, like I see teenagers having on TikTok now, right? So those kind of things are do give me little glimmers of hope of like, oh wow, this really is like a movement of people realizing and waking up and being like, this doesn't make sense. The way that we have done things for however many years doesn't make sense. And where that goes, right, it remains to be seen because there's just so much wealth and power still consolidated in older, um, you know, uh, generations, power brokers. But I, I just, so it's not all doom and gloom, right? Like, I mean, think about, as we've talked about here, like, right, the overturning of Roe, there has been in, in one of the biggest political movements in history in response, right? And it's young people um, getting registered to vote. And people are like, wait a second, like, this is not the country we want to live in. This is not the world we want to live in. So again, we'll see where it goes. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's the power. It's, uh, you know, I, I often post um, a quote by, um, I'm going to totally blank on his name. He's an Italian author. Ugh, I'll just do the quote and then maybe I'll think of it. He, right. He says like the old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. These are the time of monsters. And he did that in the early 1900s talking about the rise of fascism in Italy. But like, I always come back to that quote because it's so true, right? It's like the new world is struggling to be born and the old world is dying and we feel it. And this is the lash out, right? It's the Donald Trump's it's the, the old world is dying and it's lashing out to try to hold on to as much power until their last dying breath as like, those are the monsters. Um, so anyway, it's, there's hope. Yeah, absolutely. And it's funny you should mention that. We were talking about that downstairs this morning in book club about how our generation in particular is a really great example of, I mean, think about how our generation is in therapy compared to like the previous generation. What What's that? Oh, good job, Bob. Good job. We have access to the internet up there. Um, yeah, but I mean, think about our generation and the generation, you know, after us, the Gen Z, you know, they, they are willing to really go to therapy and deal with their shit, frankly, and to, you know, and, and frankly, they're being taught critical thinking skills that our parents' generation were not taught. They weren't, I mean, there's so much undiagnosed depression and anxiety and brokenness in our parents' generation. I know in, in, my, in my family, that's true. But we're a different generation that has come to terms, not completely, but has come to terms with those things. We don't see therapy as weakness. I mean, we go to therapy and it's seen as a sign of strength. You know, I mean, there's been some radical shifts in how we deal with trauma and, and, and societal problems with our generation. And that gives us hope. I, I, really, I have the same hope you do. Um, yeah. Anyway, well, let's end on that hopeful note and let's, uh, let's end with our benediction uh, as we do now. Let's say this together. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. Thanks for being here, everybody, and to all of you who joined us online. Go in peace. Music